Okay, so before I try to explain my title, I want to give you an alternate title. Would Paul Twitter and Text? Now, actually, that's a pretty significant question, and I, I believe it is related to our text. So I'll remind myself to come back to that. But now to my deeper title, Was Paul Codependent? That, of course, uh, that term, codependency, has become the rage. It's probably already had its day and gone, and I probably won't weep if it is. But uh, some people could look at our text and, and look upon Paul as rather emotionally or psychologically unhealthy when he says in verse 8 of chapter 3, For now we are alive again if you stand firm in the Lord. In other words, Paul's joy or his sorrow is dependent upon others. And some would say that's not a very healthy thing to be true of anybody and an apostle perhaps in particular. So we'll talk about that in a moment because this is one of those texts where you see very much Paul closely linked emotionally to the the Thessalonians and where they are in terms of their walk with the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's talk about the importance of our text for a moment. It contains uh, some of my favorite verses in in chapter 2, verses 19 and 20. For who is our hope or joy or crown of rejoicing before our Lord Jesus at his coming? Is it not, of course, you? For you are our glory and joy. If that is true of you, you are indeed blessed people. Because that is the way it ought to be. It is not always the way it is. It is the way it ought to be. And it's right in the center, so to speak, of our text. And then uh, in chapter 3, verses 11 through 13, where Paul closes this section out with a prayer that God would direct their way to the Thessalonians, that he would cause them to increase and abound in their love for one another and for all men, and that he, in doing so, would establish their hearts so that when they stand before God at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, they would do so holy and blameless. I think you would say those are indeed biblical and lofty goals. And when you look at our text, we are at the end. This Our text is the conclusion for those first three chapters. And you remember that I raised the question in these, how is it that Paul can talk about experience the, the, uh, his experience with the, Thess- the Thessalonians and theirs with him, how is it that he can take their experience and make it the basis for his exhortation and his application in chapters 4 and 5? When in Colossians and in Ephesians and in Romans, it's doctrine and then application here, it is in some measure experience and application. How do we justify that? Well, I think that what we'll, we'll see is that what Paul is getting at is going to be found in his conclusion, right? I mean, if a guy's doing what he ought to do, when he gets to his conclusion, you ought to figure out where he was going, if he's clear, and surely Paul was. So these verses are critical because they, they really give us 
the bottom line for where Paul has been going in chapters 1 through 3 and what the relationship then is of those first three chapters to the last two, which is where you will find the application. So here's what I'd like to do in this message. I want to talk for a moment about the context uh, in chapters 1 and 2, but in particular in the paragraph that comes just before our text that we dealt with last week in verses 13 through 16. I want to come back to that for a minute because I think it's critical to understanding our text. And then I want to look at the major sections in our text. In verses 17 through 20, you have the subject of Paul's absence and of his affection for the Thessalonians. In chapter 3, verses 1 through 5, you have him sending Timothy. And in verses 6 through 13, Timothy returns with this report. And you have the response of Paul to the report that Timothy gives about the spiritual health and growth of the church at Thessalonica. I want to try then to connect all of that into the flow of his argument and ask ourselves, what in the world is Paul trying to get at? And then what does that mean for us in terms of its application uh, for Christians today? So let's look, if we can, for a moment at the text in its context. In chapter 1, Paul was expressing his optimism and his confidence in what God is going to do in the Thessalonians because God has chosen them and that election has been evidenced by their faith, their love, and their hope in that order in in Paul's writing. That has been evidenced in them and so Paul has confidence that this is going to be a growing, thriving church because it is a church that is rooted in the sovereign work of God in their lives. When you come to chapters 2 and 3, Paul is going to talk about his love, and I use that singular, his and, and Timothy and Silvanus, their love for the Thessalonians. In verses 1 through 12 of chapter 2, it's his love for them while he is with them. That is, when he was there with the Thessalonians proclaiming the gospel, he, he points to those things which manifest his love for them. In verses 17 of chapter 2 through 3.13, in other words, our text, now it's Paul's love for the Thessalonians in his absence from them. So first part, Paul's love in, in, in his presence with them. Now his love for them as evidenced by his actions and attitudes in his absence from them. Now, you'll notice I left out that one section, verses 13 through 16. And uh, so let me go back and just read that section to you because it is so critical. Paul says, And so we too constantly thank God that when you received God's message, that you heard from us, you accepted it not as a human message, but as it truly is God's message, which is at work among you who believe. For you became imitators, brothers and sisters, of God's churches in Christ Jesus that are in Judea, because you too suffered the same things from your own countrymen as they did, in fact, from the Jews, who killed both the Lord Jesus and the prophets and persecuted us severely. They are displeasing to God and are opposed to all people, because they hinder us from speaking to the Gentiles so that they may be saved." 
Thus they constantly fill up their measure of sins, but wrath has come upon them completely. Now, when you come to chapter seven, uh, verse 17, if it's translated rightly, it'll pick up the emphasis of the original text and it'll say, but we. And it's clear then that what Paul is doing is contrasting he and his colleagues' response and attitude towards people with those of the opposing Jews or opposing Gentiles who resist the salvation of those who are Gentiles and make difficulty, and they're, as he says, opposed to all people. So Paul is contrasting himself and others with these people that he has described, both in terms of the Judean unbelieving Jews, among whom Paul would have been numbered, as you know, and these Gentile unbelievers in Thessalonica. So let's talk about that for a moment. He says in those verses that the Thessalonians became imitators, and this is more by inference, but he basically says, you became imitators of me. In chapter 2, verses 1 and 2, he talks about the way in which they suffered greatly for bringing the gospel to the Thessalonians, and yet they did so joyfully and confidently. Now, in these verses, he's saying, as the verses spell out in chapters 1 and 2, they joyfully received the gospel in the midst of affliction and persecution. So they were like Paul in that regard. But the main emphasis he makes in verses 14 through 16 is that they were imitators of their Judean believers. In other words, he's talking about the close proximity and identity that they have with Judean, uh, let's say Jerusalem for now, that for Jerusalem Jewish believers. And they are miles apart. Would you not agree? Now, Paul is going to work on this later, and I don't want to pick this up and go too far with it. But remember, the Macedonian churches are going to give a collection for the saints in Judea. Are they not? Acts chapter 11, Agabus. And what Paul is doing is working to get these Gentile uh, Macedonian believers to think and to be one with Jewish believers uh, and to show their essential unity in Christ. That's very consistent with Ephesians 2 and Ephesians chapter 3. But I think that's what he's saying. You are like them. Now, stop and think for a minute about this. Because I, I don't think we really understand what it's like to be a Thessalonian Gentile and to turn to faith in Christ. The Jewish unbelievers are not eager for Gentiles to come to faith. Would you not agree with me? They are not eager. That's what Paul says in this text. In Jerusalem and in Judea, they opposed the preaching of the gospel to Gentiles. And if Gentiles came to faith, then they insisted that those Gentiles become Jewish in order to be acceptable. That's a huge problem. But the reality is, these Thessalonian saints, who I think there's at least a significant, perhaps predominant number of them in the church, and he says... In chapter 1, you turn to God from idols. That sounds like pagans to me. Think about what that meant. When you turn to God from your idols, not adding God to your idols, but turning to God from your idols, you have now stepped outside of your family religion. You have stepped outside of your culture. 
And that's not a happy thought. If you had one of those phones that had friends and family, you might as well cancel the plan, folks. Because if you turn to faith in Jesus Christ, you, you won't be talking to your old friends or your family. And they, more than that, they will not be talking to you. Because you have left the family religion. You have left the family idols. And so there's this strong animosity that takes place. And I never really saw this before. The kinship between unbelieving Jews and unbelieving Gentiles. And you ask yourself this question. When Paul is left for uh, stoned and left for dead in Lystra, you read and, and you see it in other places as well. The unbelieving Jews come and they persuade unbelieving Gentiles to join with them or at least to tolerate their persecution of Christians. What in the world do unbelieving Jews and unbelieving Gentiles have in common when unbelieving Jews do not want Gentiles in their kingdom? How is it that the, the people of Lystra can so quickly turn from trying to worship Paul and Barnabas to allowing them to be stoned and left for dead in their city? And I would say this. There's really a lot of common ground between unbelieving Jews and unbelieving Gentiles. Number one, they both hate the gospel of Jesus Christ. Jews do not want Gentiles being saved. That's why they persecute uh, Paul and others for preaching the gospel. Unbelieving Gentiles don't want Gentiles to be saved either, do they? Do you want, if you're an idol worshiper, do you want your idol-worshipping son to turn from his idols and to worship Jesus Christ alone as God? So now I understand why these guys could get in cahoots so quickly. Unbelieving Jews and unbelieving Gentiles have one great thing in common. They don't want Gentiles to be saved. For different reasons, but it doesn't matter. It may be for economic reasons, because the family idol-making business is going to have difficulty but they're really on the same page. So Paul points out that, that there is that common denominator in terms of the opposition. Just as the unbelieving Jews persecuted the saints in Judea, so your unbelieving Gentile friends are persecuting you for essentially the same reasons. But you have an identity with those believing Jews. And then I think his point is, Look at how different we are. These people, he says, are opposed to all men. Look at how Paul finishes his prayer in verse 13 of chapter 3. Uh, let, oh, let's go back to verse 12. And may the Lord cause you to increase and abound in love for one another and for all. Paul prays that they would have a love not only for their fellow believers, but for all men. That's very much unlike those who are, in verse 15 above, in chapter 2, opposed to all people. So what you're going to see here is when you come to but we, in verse 17, Paul is strongly contrasting he and his fellow uh, missionaries from those who are opposed to the preaching of the gospel to Gentiles and what characterizes Paul and his associates is the key, I think, to understanding uh, our text. By the way, when you think about this opposition of, of Jews uh, to, to taking the gospel to Gentiles, think about the Abrahamic covenant. 
What was the Abrahamic covenant about? The Abrahamic covenant was the promise that God would bless Abraham and his seed. We might even say God would bless Abraham through his seed. That's true, through the Messiah. In order that he may be a blessing to all nations. That was the part that unbelieving Jews wanted nothing to do with. No way did they want their blessings going to unbelieving Gentiles. But that was what Paul was about. So, next section, uh, verses 17 through 20. I call this, Absence Made Paul's Heart Grow Fonder. And it really, really did, as you can see from our, from our text. The question is there, not just here in Thessalonica, but the question is there in Corinth, as you see in 2 Corinthians. It's there in Rome, as you see in Romans chapter 1, and picked up in Romans chapter 16, a place to which Paul had not yet been in Rome. But the Corinthians were saying of Paul, he writes these letters, man, is he strong when he writes. But why isn't he here? They were, they were wondering what Paul's absence meant for them. Exodus chapter 32. When is it that the golden calf is made? When Moses is up on the mountain and he's absent, they say, well, we don't know when this guy's ever coming back. If he's not here, we need somebody. And so here are the Thessalonians. They've experienced the love that Paul has for them. In a sense, Paul and these people are, the, are, are his, are their parents. Is it any wonder that Paul describes himself as a nursing mother and as a caring father to these people? When they came to faith in Christ, they lost their families in almost every case. What Paul is saying is, in effect, when we came to you, we are, in one sense, like a father and like a mother. We are your family. And, uh, and now they're saying, Paul isn't here. What's going on? We haven't heard from him. We don't know. What does his absence mean? Does it mean somehow there's an alienation of affections? Has he lost his zeal for us? And uh, Paul says very clearly, his absence is not voluntary. We didn't choose it. (laughs) And it's not wanted. And it's no indication of alienation of affection. By the way, in, in my text it says we were separated That's not really strong enough. The word is literally orphaned. We were orphaned. And what he's saying is, when we left Thessalonica, we were torn from you. We didn't hot-foot it out of town in the sense that we had had enough of Thessalonica. We were ripped apart. That is Paul's heart. It is as though a mother has had her child taken from her arms. We are orphaned from you, not just separated. But now, he says, we desire even more strongly than then. Our desire is to be with you. We love you. We want to be there. The problem is not with Paul. The problem is, he says, we've tried several times. It says in some text, once and again, which may make you think it's twice. There are some scholars who would say that is really more like saying we have tried over and over And if that's the case, then many times Paul has made an effort for some reason he has been prevented from doing that. And in this instance, it is attributed to the work of Satan. Satan hindered us. It was not us 
who didn't desire to be with you. It was Satan who didn't desire us to be with you. We made every effort on our part to do so. He's going to end this section with a prayer that God will pave the way for them to go and to be rejoined to those that we love. Here's my favorite section. You could do a sermon on this alone, but you're going to be unhappy if you smell all that stuff cooking down the hall and I'm going on past 12 very far. He says, you are our hope, our joy, our crown of rejoicing. I don't think that's the crown in which I boast. I think it's a crown that God has given to us so that we boast in him. In other words, these people are Paul's reward. Paul sees these saints as a gracious gift that God has given to him. And so there's a twofold thing that's going to happen. The Verse 19 is looking to the future, our hope. He drops that word in verse 20. See, I understand Paul to be saying, in effect, that I have laid up my treasure in heaven, but the treasure is not money. The treasure is saints. So what he's saying is, in a sense, when he comes into heaven and here's this host of people who have come to faith, in a sense, like Paul says in, in 2 Corinthians 11, I want to present you as a bride that's perfect to him. He's saying, that is my reward, is to greet you in heaven and say to the Lord Jesus, here are people that you gave through my ministry this is my joy. This is my privilege. This is my treasure. This is my pearl of great price. That's future-oriented. The Verse 20 is present. Now he says, you are our glory and joy. Not hope. Not hope. Because what he's saying is, I look forward in verse 19 to what will be. I'm talking to you now about what is. I love you. You are my glory. You are my prize. Years ago on television, there was a program, and I don't remember the name of the program, but there was a fellow who had adopted a number of kids. And they had this show that was sort of, this is your life. And at the end, they have this guy's adopted child come on. And I remember this father, with tears in his eyes, said, you are my treasure. You are my joy and my reward. That's what Paul's saying. He loves these people and he wants to be with them. Is Paul distant from them because he doesn't care? Not at all. He's distant because for some reason Satan is hindered and God has allowed that to take place. And I think we'll see why in a little bit. So, in uh, verses three, uh, verses 1 through 5 of chapter 3, I call this Paul cared enough to send the very best. And that is exactly true. I know he doesn't have a hallmark sticker on him, but Timothy is the best Paul has to offer. The issue is, if Paul really cares, but he can't be there, then what is Paul going to do to show these people his affection and his great concern for them? And so he says that he has sent Timothy as an evidence of his great concern. And the concern is this persecution and affliction that they've come under. Yes, they experienced that while he was there. But he knows that that affliction and persecution is going on. He also knows because Satan is hindering him 
that Satan wants to hinder the growth and the stability of that church at Thessalonica. So he wants to know, one, what's happening to those people I love? Doesn't that make sense? You want to call if you've got a son or a daughter that's a distant place. You want to get on that telephone. Whatever the fastest means of communication is, you want to know how they're doing. Paul wants to know. And he knows they want to know about him. And so he sends Timothy to them. And Timothy's job is to do two things. Check on their spiritual status and to encourage and strengthen them. I actually said it in reverse order the way it is in the text. But that's his job. His job is to go and do what Paul would like to do but can't. And secondly, his job is to bring a report back to Paul who is greatly concerned about these saints and tell him how they are doing. You'll see that elsewhere in in Paul's writings. He talks about being at Troas and a door being opened wide for ministry. And he said, I was so concerned because I didn't know what was going to go. I was waiting for Titus and I didn't have a report. And I, I just... I just wasn't able to function like I ought to because I cared about how you were. And when he gets good word, Paul is in on cloud nine, so to speak. He says, the issue is the tribulation and the sufferings they're going through. He makes it clear in verse four. Listen, this isn't something that comes to you as a surprise. You know that we came suffering. You know that we came to you telling you, if you follow Jesus Christ, you'll suffer too. So it's not a surprise what you're going through, but Satan would like to use that to drive a wedge between you and God. Paul's motivation is his love and concern for that church and those great people. So Timothy is sent to strengthen and encourage to find out their faith. But the thing we need to understand is, Paul sending Timothy is an evidence of his love and affection in several ways. One of them is, it is a great personal sacrifice to Paul. He says, I will, I decided, I know he uses the we, but if you're left alone, that's one. And, and so I think he's now boiled down in a sense. He's the one who will remain. He says, I decided to send Timothy on to you and remain on in, at Athens alone. Now, we're going to see in a minute that things weren't going so well for Paul either. And so for Paul to let uh, Timothy go was to leave a man who was the closest person to Paul, my son, he calls him, the one who was ministering to Paul. He now sends away, and that sacrificial gift to Paul uh, from Paul is another evidence of his love. Now, when you come to verses 6 through 13, you see that Paul is now responding to Timothy's return. He has now heard back about how things are going in Thessalonica. Timothy has come back, and he's now talking about that report and how he responds to it. Notice in verse 7 what he has to say in chapter 3. So in all our distress and affliction... We were reassured about you, brothers and sisters, through your faith. See, Paul is concerned about the Thessalonians because he knows they're going through tribulation. Not the great tribulation. They're going through tribulation, persecution for their faith. But what he tells us in verse 7 and what he tells them is we, too, are going through persecution. If we had time, we would look at several other texts. But you remember in 2 Corinthians 7 
where he talks about the anguish in his soul because he's worried about the state of, of, of the church and wondering how things are going with them. In 2 Corinthians 11, he says, you know, we not only endured all this persecution, we bore the weight of the church. When you found yourself struggling, we agonized. So Paul, in a sense, is bearing the weight of the world, so to speak, on his shoulders. And when the church does well, he rejoices. When the church doesn't do well, he agonizes. So Paul is saying, in effect, things weren't going well for us when I sent Timothy to you. We were going through our own versions of opposition and persecution not to mention the added burden of wondering how it was going with you. All of that is our state, but we sent Timothy to you, and now Timothy has come back with this report. Verse 7, he says, we're reassured. What we had hoped for, the thing we had confidently expected in chapter 1, is what we heard. You are standing in your faith and you are doing well. No news could be better news to the Apostle Paul than that. We were reassured. But it's when you get to verse 8. He says we were revived. Not just reassured. He's, we're revived. In other words, he says that's when we could really live when we knew things were going well with you. That's my codependent verse. But Paul cannot think about being joyful if the church is doing badly. He cannot think any other thoughts than rejoicing and thanksgiving when he hears what's going on. He said, now, in a sense, we are free to really live because all this cloud of doubt and wonder, how is it going with the church, is, uh, is suddenly dispensed. So Paul's response is really seen by his prayers that are described in verses 9 through 13. His first prayer is a prayer of thanksgiving. He is thanking God. It's kind of coming back full circle because that's sort of the way he started in chapter 1. It's a prayer of thanksgiving, but Paul's prayer initially was a prayer because they had come to faith. Now it's a prayer that they're standing firm in their faith as reported by Timothy on his return. And then in verses 10 and 11, it's a prayer of petition. A petition that God would pave the way for he and perhaps his associates as well, for them to come back to Thessalonica and to be with these believers face to face. I want to say a little bit more about that face to face in a minute, but that's where my Twitter and texting comes in, so I'll save that. But he desires and prays that God would bring them back to Thessalonica. And then he prays in verse 12 for the growth of their love. This is now, remember, this is the conclusion of that whole introductory first three chapters. And I want you to notice how it goes. He says in verse 12, And may the Lord cause you to increase and abound in love for one another and for all, just as we do for you, that you'll have the same love for other believers and for all mankind that we have, that you'll be like us in that. Now, so that, verse 13, so having that kind of love produces the result he's describing in verse 13, and that is so that your hearts are strengthened in holiness to be blameless before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ with all of his saints. 
How is it that Paul expects the Thessalonians to be blameless when the Lord Jesus comes again? It is that they have a great love for one another and a great love for others, and that love prompts them and moves them toward holiness so that when they come and stand before God, they will be approved by Him. Okay, now we can talk about our conclusion and application. The benefits of face-to-face relationships. It's interesting, Paul says, I want to come, and he literally says, to be with you face-to-face. Facebook is not face-to-face, by the way. Facebook is not face-to-face. And uh, even even Paul's epistle is not face-to-face. Interestingly, I was reading the seminary's uh, paperwork on intern programs, and you know what it says? Ideally, in fact, when, when anybody, uh, uh, an, an intern and their supervisor uh, is supposed to have meetings, they must be face-to-face. Isn't that interesting? They must be face-to-face. No telephone stuff, no email. They actually say this in it. No, they understand there is something about face-to-face contact that works better than something in print. And, uh, and so that's what Paul is, is saying here. I, I, I don't want to get off and ride this horse, but I want you to think about it, my friends. I know from just what I hear, I do not have texting on my phone. I don't have time for texting on my phone. But I will tell you this. Texting is not intimate conversation. It, it is code words and whatever. And, and you, you may have 5,000 text messages a, a month. That is not an intimate conversation. You do not see people in the eye. You do not read body language. And I have to tell you that I don't think texting gives a sense of where people are in their walk with Jesus Christ. I'm not against it. Don't, don't, I think what I would say is this. The answer to my question, would Paul text in Twitter? I would say, if he were in Athens and couldn't get the Thessalonica, yes, reluctantly, so that he could make his plane reservations to be there in person. That's, that's the goal. That's what Paul wants. He wants to be there with them. He wants to see them eyeball to eyeball because there's something about that relationship that is special. Now, that plays off into my view of how we ought to do church. I want to tell you that we, you know, we didn't design this building. And, and when we uh, first started meeting years ago at Believer's Chapel, there you had a room where there were four sections. Everybody looked each other in the eye. Now, I'd rather have it half round than, than one big log auditorium where you're looking at the nap of the guy's neck in front of you. But I have to tell you, there is something about looking people in the eye. Is there not? There is something about looking people in the eye and talking to them. You, you cannot somehow reproduce long distance, I mean spatially now, you cannot reproduce that which happens only face to face. You cannot do it. And so when you have a church with huge numbers, in reality, the real church is just that group of people that can get together and look at each other eyeball to eyeball. The New Testament churches, as a rule, were small bodies of people. 
And it has something to say. We have a commitment not to get overly large. Not that we would anyway, but we, we really have a commitment to stay at a size where people know one another and they look at one another. And it's in the context, my friend, when we have the meeting of the church and we're looking at each other, that's where we find out where people are. I would be interested if there were a way of knowing it. I would be interested to know the amount of ministry that takes place during the week that was triggered by what people saw and heard eyeball to eyeball Sunday morning. I want to tell you, I think it's significant. Am I saying you, you shouldn't send cards, you shouldn't send emails? I am not saying that at all. I am saying they are not a substitute for being with people where they are and talking to them eyeball to eyeball. That's what I think Paul is saying, and I think it's really important. All right, the blessings resulting from Paul's absence. One is Satan didn't get what he wanted. He never does, but he doesn't learn. He doesn't get what he wants. Look at how it works out. His purposes are defeated because Timothy grows in ministry. Now, remember, this is one of the earliest epistles that Paul writes, right? It's one of the earliest books in the New Testament. Timothy is wet behind the ears. Paul picked him up in Acts chapter 16. He is wet behind the ears, and yet, because Paul cannot go, Timothy has to go. And all through the rest of the New Testament, what do you find? Timothy is sent to Ephesus. First and second Timothy, I have sent you and I asked you to stay on at Ephesus. Why? To do what Paul wasn't able to do. This is the birth of in a sense, this is the point at which Timothy's ministry blossoms because, humanly speaking, Paul couldn't go. He sent Timothy. This is the beginning of a very significant ministry for Timothy. Paul's epistles are written. When Paul can't go, he writes and prays. And the church has benefited from his correspondence and his prayers for 2,000 years. If he'd have been able to go there, he wouldn't have had to write. But he did write. And the Thessalonians, because Paul couldn't be there and he couldn't be their crutch, they had to learn to stand alone. Paul's moving, uh, our Lord's moving Paul along, and not letting him stay too long in any one place meant people needed to depend on the Lord, not on any man, even on Paul. Now, the argument of chapters 1 through 3 and their relationship to chapters 4 and 5. Doctrine is assumed. It is not ignored. Just because I have said that chapters 1, 2, and 3 are talking about experience, I am not saying doctrine is, is stepped, sidestepped and it isn't important. He says at least 11 times, you know, in one way, shape, or form. You know. He is talking to them about doctrine they have been taught, but he's talking to them about experiencing that doctrine. It's not codependence. It's interdependence. That's what the church is about. People who are absolutely, fundamentally welded together because our gifts make us interdependent. And anything that seeks to make us autonomous and private is wrong. And my friends, a lot of the garbage that's going on in this world, starting from, uh, theoretically, starting with abortion, started with the principle of privacy. Read the documents. 
The principle of privacy. Your neighbor can do what he wants. The principle of privacy. We've got our great fences that keep us from seeing our neighbor and our neighbor from seeing us. And we've got all of these barriers and we say whatever people do in private is their business. Privacy is not what Christianity is about. It's not. We need to be aware of that in terms of where our culture is. Not experience alone, but experiencing God's love through relationships. It's not just experience that's important. It's the right kind of experience that's important. And one of the ways that we experience God's love is through our relationships with one another. Now, I want to just say something about the gospel here, and that is, if you don't have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ, then you will not enter into the fullness of all that is there. It all begins with that relationship, and that becomes the basis for all of the other relationships amongst believers. The highest motivation for obedience is not authority and not fear. It is love. And I I tracked this through. I've got you a lot of verses there, and I don't have time to read them all. But I was very interested to read this, especially related to the law. Exodus 20, verse 6. Showing covenant faithfulness to a thousand generations of those who love me and, you might say, therefore, keep my commandments. Uh, Deuteronomy 30, verse 16. What I am commanding you today is to love the Lord your God to walk in his ways and to obey his commandments, his statutes, and so on. It starts with love. Daniel chapter 9, verse 4. I pray to the Lord my God, confessing in this way, O Lord, great and awesome God, who is faithful to his covenant with those who love him and keep his commandments. It is our love for God that prompts us to obey him. That's just a principle that's all through the scriptures. Now, Matthew 22, 36 through 40, that's where our Lord Jesus gave our slogan, loving uh, God and loving my neighbor. He says, this is the essence of what the Old Testament law is. It is about loving God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and your neighbor as yourself. Sum up the law, it's love. Romans chapter 13, that's what Paul says. If you boil the law down to its essence, it is about love. The one who loves will do the things the law requires. John 14, 15, Jesus says, If you love me, you will obey my commandments. Over and over and over again in scriptures. It is the love that we have for God that motivates us to obey. By the way, in uh, Revelation chapter 2, the church at Ephesus All of the good things that could be said. Oh, they are theological watchdogs. Man, they are on top of those heretics like a duck on a June bug. But they weakened in the love they first had. You say, well, is it the love for God or is it the love for others? It's both. It's both. When you love God the way you should, you will love others. How is it that the Thessalonian saints experienced the love of God? They experienced through the message of the gospel that Christ had come and died for them. They experienced it in the cross of Calvary. That's why we remember it every week. We're reminded of God's love for us. They learn it through the word of God, and they learn it through the people of God as they love one another. They saw God's love for them 
and they heard of it through Paul. And I think that's what Paul is doing in chapters 1, 2, and 3. He is laying a foundation of love. It is not a foundation devoid of doctrine. It is a foundation that has doctrine living itself out in the lives of those who proclaim it. And I think what Paul understands is when they experience God's love, then they will delight to obey his word, his commandments. Uh, one last thing, and I'll just buzz through this. How do we know if we, uh, if we love like God wants us to love one another? My heavenly treasure will be people. If I love people the way I should, my heavenly treasure will be you and other people who are in the body of Christ. Secondly, my concern will be for your spiritual well-being and the well-being spiritually of all of my brothers and sisters in Christ. That's why the Macedonian churches gave a gift for the churches in Judea. They cared about the well-being of their brothers and sisters in Christ. Thirdly, by my attitudes and actions. Get this. My attitudes and actions toward believers who are not present. Not present. See, that was the issue with the Thessalonians. Paul was not present with them. But look at how Paul expresses his concern. He desires to see them whenever and as soon as he can, and as often as he can. He stays in communication with them. He does all of these things. And and I would say to you, one of the things that's been a strength of this church is when people are in the hospital, we send cards and we do all that. That is great stuff. But it's like Twittering and texting. The best stuff of all is eyeball to eyeball. And that's why when Hebrews talks about we ought not to forsake the assembling of ourselves together, we ought to have a yearning to gather together as we do every week, not only to be at our Lord's Supper and and remember Him, but also, secondarily, to be with one another and to express our love for one another as a body. My love will be manifest by my prayers offered for others. Notice Paul's prayers? Offered for their growth, for their growth in love, for their maturity, for their standing before God, sinless and blameless. By my subordination of my interests to the interests of others. This text is an excellent example of Philippians 2, 1 through 8. Have this mind in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. And he didn't cling to all the prerogatives and so on. Uh, but he considered the interests of others more important than himself. If you read on in chapter 2, that's where Paul explains to the Philippians why he's sending Timothy from him to them. Because he's more interested in their interests than his. That's an evidence of my love. Well, with that, I think we can say... Paul wasn't codependent, but he sure did like people. Listen to this. Stott says, The fact is that his life was inextricably bound up with theirs. Isn't that right? And my friend, that is not sick. That is not sick. Now, I'm not sure that anybody that had a right mind would even dare to say that. But that is spiritual health. 
is to be so intertwined with fellow believers in the body of Christ that their well-being is mine. That's what it says. Weep with those who weep. Rejoice with those who rejoice. We so identify with one another that your experiences become mine. And I identify with you. That's the kind of love that we ought to have for one another and for the lost. Father, thank you for this text. Thank you for Paul's love. Most of all, thank you for the love of the Lord Jesus for us. We know that we love because he first loved us. Give us that kind of love as we raise our children, as we minister and lead other people, as we seek to win the lost. Give us that kind of love. Father, we, we now have a, a, a meal that we share together where we may be eyeball to eyeball. The table is a wonderful place for people to find out how one another are doing. Help our conversation not to be shallow. Help us to seek to know how one another may be doing in their walk with you, to be an encouragement, to strengthen thank you for the hands that have prepared the food and we ask that you would be with our time together now as we share this meal in jesus name amen